Hello, I'm Jay Goodwin, and you're listening to Pay It Forward. Before we get into this episode, I have uh, two music suggestions and a quote to consider uh, before you listen to this episode. So from the guest, today's musical suggestion is Chandelier by Sia. And for me, uh, it's Symphony 2 by Gustav Mahler. And the quote for your consideration comes from Confucius in his book, The Analects. And it says, if one learns from others but does not think, one will be bewildered. If, on the other hand, one thinks but does not learn from others, one will be in peril. And now to the show. Today on Pair Four, we have Diasha Randolph. Um, first of all, she has an amazing intro, and I'm going to read a little bit about you know her bio right now. So, Diasha is a media strategist and senior account executive in corporate affairs and multicultural communications. She's extremely passionate about the intersection of culture and media with a strong lens on social justice. She has been highly successful in developing and executing corporate and multicultural media strategies, both nationally and globally. Um, and they all lead with innovative, authentic, and compelling storytelling and with some of the world's largest brands and corporate entities. She's also editor of The Nook, her new weekly newsletter that shares the latest in book reviews, news articles, and podcasts. Uh, Diasha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This is my first podcast, but I love podcasts. So I was like, I was geeked up when, like, when I got the invite. I was like, yay! finally my opportunity (laughs) (laughs) no I mean I appreciate you taking the time um so I normally start these off with you know where are you from Mm -hmm. and what did you think you were going to be when you were growing up um I am from Atlanta Georgia and honestly I don't really remember having very distinct childhood like dreams of being something but this is going to sound really funny. I just always knew I wanted to be like a powerful businesswoman. When I was younger, I used to like dream of wearing heels and like listening to like click down the hallway. Um, I thought that was like the epitome of like womanhood. And Mm -hmm. I always aspired, like whatever I wanted to do, I wanted to be a boss and I wanted to like have my heels click down the hallway. And I actually achieved that. So it's pretty exciting. But now since I'm working from home, it's just like my socks sliding. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the hardwood floor of my um, mom and dad's house since I'm back at home with my mom and dad. <laughs> so um, where is, so is back at home in Atlanta? Yeah, back at home is in Atlanta. Um, I technically worked in DC, but since the pandemic started, my lease ended, I was like, what better time to go back home and just like not pay rent, which has been such an amazing blessing because I hate paying rent. It's like my <laughs> least favorite thing to do. <laughs> So I'm happy. Yeah, it's it's really nice to be home. And it's like, this is more than likely like the last time I'll be able to spend this much time with my mom and dad before like, I don't know, like life and children and, you know, things happen. Yeah. So, yeah. So do you think um, like, do you have like a timeline for going back? Are you planning on hanging out in Atlanta for a while? Or you know, do you have you worked that out yet? Yeah, I definitely plan on going back because my childhood bedroom is not, it's not going to suffice for much longer. I would like to go back within the first like four months of 2021. It really just depends on like what my work situation is like. Like if they're saying like, okay, come on back, then I'll consider it. Um, 
But if they're just still saying, you know, chill, like, you know, just keep working from home, then I'll just, I'll figure it out. I'm really just playing my life by ear right now. I don't have any solid plans. Gotcha. Um, and we're, we're going to cover this a little more in depth later. Um, but you are a senior account executive. Um, yeah. So, you know, what is, what's a day in the life of a senior account exec? Oh, a day in the life is very different depending on the day, as many like agency people um, recognize. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you are at an agency, you typically have like a lot of different accounts that you're working on. So I specialize in corporate and multicultural work, but I have about five or six different clients at any time that I'm building strategies for, watching media trends, um, working on earned media and owned media. One thing I do love uh, is writing. So any type of op-ed or long form content I like to focus on. And also just like general messaging and like message development is so important. Um, and when you think about brands that you love, like Wendy's or um, Nike, they all have a very unique brand story. So one thing that I like to do is focus on what's that story for the client? You know, what are the key messages they want to pull through? in every piece of communication, that's what I like to really dig into. Mm. It's a really big part of um, public relations and media work. Okay, so we will for sure be coming back to that stuff. I'm like yes. making so many <laughs> notes. Um, but I, I wanted to hurry and kind of rush through that and get to um, you know some of the stuff that we had mentioned. Of those, I, I have down recent job anxiety in general, um, Zoom fatigue, <laughs> multicultural and DNI communications, um, and there's like some some subcategories from there, but where, you know, where do you want to start? What's uh, what do you want to talk yeah. about? First? So you know, I'll start with like the work first, I guess. So with my multicultural and corporate work, I'm at a very unique cross point of um, a lot of brands, like really big brands, who might not have thought to really prioritize black and brown audiences in in the aftermath of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd every single freaking brand in the world had something to say like it was mm -hmm. like as a communicator it was such a crazy moment of me like looking at all of these brand messaging and like realizing that more than likely a lot of white people developed that um and then on the other end being a consumer me being like you know do i really trust this and i always find it interesting as a communicator and a consumer to that when you can like pinpoint the messages and you're like, oh my gosh, I know that that went up the ladder 45 times before I got a prudent <laughs> pulling out. Um, so for me specifically, you know, being a black woman in media and, you know, being a strong writer and doing this type of work, um, I, I started to get hit with all of these, like, you know, in different words, but you're a black woman, you do communications, can you help this brand? Like, what, what should my client say? What should my client do? Mm -hmm. And I remember being like, wow, like, I'm actually mourning the deaths of these people. I never met them, I never knew them, but I'm in pain just as a black woman. And it was hard getting up some days, you know, just sad and crying because like the world was like truly in flames and like living in DC and being so close to all the protests, you know, like you're seeing that. And on the other end, you have client work and you have like your responsibilities and they're all of a sudden like, black people, black people, black people. And it's like, well, it was like such a crazy time. And it gave me such anxiety because I honestly felt like the weight of the black community was like on my shoulders. And I, and I remember um, 
one of like, I, I was counting a client and I'm not going to say any names, but I was counting a client on a statement. The statement went out and it went over, oh, it went over just about as well as all the other ones went over. Like everyone was like, okay, yeah, yeah. Like you made this promise, you know, like we were, everyone was getting tired of it. But I remember like looking through the comments on Facebook and on Twitter and people were like roasting the statement. They were going in and it wasn't a bad statement. It was just like the brand people just didn't, um, I don't think they expected to hear that from them. So people were like roasting them and I'm like, dang y'all, like I developed that. So, <laughs> so, you know, or I worked on that, you know, and I made, I made that happen. So it was such a, it's, it's a very interesting point. Um, doing multicultural communications, especially now, which is great because, you know, it's like, it's about time that these brands who, you know, the black dollars are really keeping them alive, you know, like we're, we're spending a lot of money with these brands. It's great that y'all are acknowledging, um, you know, the struggle, but it's also difficult when you're, you're still struggling. Like I'm still oppressed by these, the same systems that, you know, like are sometimes upheld by these brands, by these corporations. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that kind of like just led into this greater general anxiety of like, I'm also just so tired of work sometimes. Like I'm like, it's just difficult for all of us to get up in the morning and like put on a, a face and be like, Hey, like, you know, I'm so great. Oh yeah. I'll work on that deck. It's fine. And you know, like <laughs> between calls, you're like looking at the news and it's like depressing. Mm -hmm. And it's also hard, um, when you can't disconnect from the news. Um, I was like at one point doing okay with disconnecting, but so much of my work is waking up in the morning, looking at the front pages, what are the trends, what do we need to prepare for, you know, like what should I brief my clients on, so it's like it's very difficult when you work in media strategy to separate yourself from media, mm. but all of those things, you know, just like job anxiety for everyone is so real and I'm blessed that I'm still employed which is like you know it's not the kind of job anxiety where I'm like I don't I'm not making ends meet which I'm so blessed for that but the 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 work that we do can sometimes just be so exhausting um and I've been very open about that because I feel like people need to recognize and you know no one's perfect no one's job situation is perfect and I've actually connected with so many people through like me joking and whining I'm like oh my gosh y'all I have eight hours worth of meetings today and I've like connected with people just through the struggle of this whole pandemic and trying to work through it okay so I was furiously trying to scribble down notes but you gave me so like there's so much I could follow up on um you know oh, from <laughs> Yeah, so uh, well, I'm trying to decide which which would be um, you know the richest to follow up on. So you mentioned a lot of stuff. You were talking about the brand messages, you know, as a communicator on the one hand and as a consumer on the other, being a black woman in media and having this duality, which leads to this sort of weight of the community on your shoulders, um, and just being tired. And uh, you know, I wanted to say that like I 100% know how that feels because I I very vividly remember being at home and you know I had just gotten off of some calls on Twitter scrolling on my phone and I saw the George Floyd video and I sat there and I watched it and I tried to do something somebody like emailed me or something I tried to do something and I ended up just like calling my mom and just like flat out crying to her on the phone yeah. and um, I was like all right well I got this call coming up I gotta go it's <laughs> just like very how relatable are you, how are you supposed to do that um but one thing you mentioned was like you you had written this statement, you know, for a brand and 
they were roasting Brandon. So I wanted to ask because this kind of goes along with what you mentioned about like the duality of being a communicator and a consumer. Um, in the case where you have something like that happen, you know, how do you figure out if that response or that sentiment is more about, you know, specifically the statement itself or more about the baggage that comes along with the brand, you know, and, and trying to bridge the gap? Like, is it just seen as, like, how do you figure out if something's just seen as inauthentic? How do you sort of pick, you know, the constructive bits out of that kind of feedback? Yeah. So with that one specifically, there are a couple of factors that I think went into us getting roasted. <laughs> um, it's so funny. So the first one, the first thing that I feel like led to the roasting was it was after like weeks of every single brand from like McDonald's to the dollar store, like everyone was saying something. So it was pretty like late in the game um, Two, this brand didn't have a bad reputation like you know it, there was never anything like on the back end that there that we had to worry about and of course before we do statements like that there is a risk assessment there are like different steps that you take to make sure that this is not going to happen but in general it, it was just one of those brands that never took a stand on anything so it's like you know you've never taken a stand this is and this is your first thing and i think people were like why now like you know like and it almost i think it did probably feel inauthentic because at that point the consumers had already seen hundreds of thousands of brand messaging so those are the, the i guess the three main factors that led into the roasting but what we had to you know and when i was doing this work um you have to really prep your clients with the knowledge that you are not going to get a golden cookie for this. You're <laughs> yeah. not going to get a pat on the back. You know, you're doing the right thing and you're not going to get like major kudos for that. So either you want to do it for the right reasons or you want to do it for a pat on the back. And, you know, luckily this brand wanted to do it for the right reasons and they've done a really great job of following up on the back end. And that's something that, you know, we've been counseling clients through as well. It's just like, okay, it starts with the statement, the donation, the whatever you want to do. But come June 2021, a year after, you know, you're going to have to be held accountable for what you've done throughout this year. It doesn't stop at a statement. So, and that's the fun part about the work because you start with this one thing and then it grows into something else. And then, you know, you build campaigns around it and you find these moments in time um, and you partner with like local organizations. So that's when the real fun part of like the PR side of things gets done. But, you know, sometimes you do have to go through the fire and especially um, this summer when just like, you know, every brand was saying something and it was, I was almost like, this is getting wild. And we, we had this super long tracker of like all the brands that had said something. Mm -hmm. And like I would look through it and I would be like, why you know like you know you you have a comment like they have a comment it, <laughs> it was so crazy so you know those are the factors but i think for brands to avoid issues like that is that you know you have to find that intersection of purpose and profit obviously these brands want to make money but um it, it can't just be like oh suddenly we care about black people and i think that's what a lot of consumers are feeling it's like oh we were never prioritized until you've seen three very heinous and crazy murders. Um, so yeah, if that answer your question, that helps answer your question. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I love the point about um, sort of closing that Venn diagram between purpose and profit. Um, uh, regarding like all the brands who decided to say something, do you remember 
um, in your research, uh, you know, for talking to your clients, if there were any brands that did uh, particularly well, or if there were, you know, any particularly terrible like examples that you were like, okay, absolutely not this. Hmm. I think I always like hold them up on a pedestal, and like, luckily, there I don't work with them, so I can say this. But I mean, Ben and Jerry's, come on, mm-hmm. like Ben and Jerry's does everything well. Like they are so rooted in social justice. Like, I mean, they, I think they recently like launched a podcast um, about like, just like the history of like racial injustice in America. I don't know. I think because they had been doing this work for years before, like I recall like maybe 2017, me seeing them, me seeing them promote like 420, but like in, through the lens of, you know, they're black and brown people who are in jail for like, petty weed crimes and now y'all are starting a whole economy around weed and the people are still locked up so they have been doing that kind of like really intense and like real work so when they spoke out about you know George Floyd it felt good it felt like you know what I'm going to buy a Ben and Jerry's like I'm, I'm gonna get some ice cream like I'm gonna support that brand so that was a really great one um I'm trying to think about a really bad one that I saw that I was like what I feel like I really can't think of any because I probably saw so many that I was like, uh, whatever. But yeah, nothing like horrible stands out, but I'm positive that there were some real horrible ones. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, something else I wanted to follow up with you on, um, and this goes back to this idea of, you know, the duality between, um, you know, being a Black woman who's working in media, um, you know, feeling that weight that you have to sort of I don't know if represent is the right word, but, you know, mm-hmm. you know, put out something that is authentic um, to both the community that it's intended for and the brand or organization that is saying whatever they're saying. Um, you know, and you talked about, you know, just feeling that weight and, and wondering if you were doing the right thing, if you were saying the right thing. Um, you know, how did you sort of cope with with those feelings? How did you sort of resolve those, you know, whether it was within yourself or with the people you were working with? Yeah, that was really hard because, you know, I think being Black in any corporate setting, people already, like, assume that you're going to do DNI work, which is not always true. And I just happen to be a communicator who does do DNI multicultural work. So, so um, I had to, like, let, I was scared of being pigeonholed. I was so scared. I was like, this time like, I am soaring. I'm doing great work. I am, like, really killing it with all these extra client asks, but um, I don't want to be pigeonholed as just, like, the Black girl who does DNI. and I was getting really scared because people were starting to only call me for DNI issues, and I was like, oh, but I can also do crisis. I can also do, like, narrative building. You know, I can also do a workshop, um, so that that scared me, but how I coped with it was just, you know, understanding that it's okay to use my lived experience to inform the work that I do. Um, and that actually really helped me out, you know, when I'm passionate about a specific injustice and I'm pissed off about it and you want me to write, you know, I'm going to write a damn good piece of work because like, you know, I'm using my, I'm using my lived experience to really inform the work that I'm doing. And another way that I had to really, um, that helped me cope with that was just really understanding that I also know what I'm doing. You know, I'm not, I'm not a novice at this. So either way, like, you know, the clients are going to have to trust me, but I also have to trust myself because there were some times where I was like, 
ooh, I'm saying this, but you know, black people are not a monolith. So I'm not, you know, this is just my experience. This is how I feel, but I don't speak for all black people. Mm. But one thing that really helped me was um, taking the, taking off the cap of feeling like I had to educate people and just saying, hey, here's my recommendation. Here's the best practice for what you're trying to do. And you know what, here are some articles that you can read. Here's some work that you can do. So the next time you come to me with a question, you can come to me even more, more so informed. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sitting here like, okay, here I am, the black girl helping you out with this. And now you're going to ask me what anti-racism is, you know, like, no, you're going to have to do that work. So it's a little bit of like, you know, remembering like, I'm good at my job. I'm excellent. I'm an expert. Yeah. So I'm giving you my best recommendation, but I'm also giving you homework. So that way, this kind of work becomes more ingrained in your everyday life. And when you have a crisis or, you know, unfortunately, when I don't, I don't want, I don't say this in a hopeful way, but you know, like if, and when the next black person is murdered by the police, you're not rushing back to me saying, Hey, 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 like, please, please, please help me, help me. And it's like, okay, here's my, you can come to me and say, here is what I'm thinking. Can you help me with this? Or can you help inform this? And that's the kind of partnership that I like to see from like allies and colleagues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that way, you know, it's not solely on your shoulders to your point. Yeah, it, it totally started to feel like, you know, and it, was, it wasn't just me. We had a whole team of like experts, multicultural experts who were helping out with this type of work. Mm-hmm. But we all got to the point where we were like, oh, gosh, like, <laughs> here they go again. Like, you know, someone's asking me what they should do for Black History Month or, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's it got really crazy, but you know, like we have to understand that I'm just using my experience to inform this work. You have to do with that what you can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of things that I want to come back to, and I think I know what order I'm going to do it. So I'll just tell you what they are first. So the first point was, you know, going back to this DNI work and sort of, you know, feeling like you can get typecast in corporate environments. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll come back to that in a second. The second was, um, you know, basically, you know, the, the thread that I got was sort of navigating, um, leading these clients, uh, you know, in being more of a strategic advisor as opposed to someone who, you know, it, they sort of lay these problems at your feet and you are going to go run with them. So coming in is more of the, uh, the advisor role, right? But right. something that you mentioned um, was, uh, and you said, I think the, the phrase you used was, you know, this is something I care about. I'm going to write you some damn good work. Um, <laughs> and so that, uh, for some reason, made me think back to the whole duality point. Mm-hmm. And so I know that you are a media strategist. Uh, I know your title is account executive. But it also seems like you're also, do- or senior account executive, sorry. Mm-hmm. But you're also doing, um, you know, writing work. So, yeah. you know, do you feel that like, you know, in sort of a traditional agency environment that you're, you're hitting, it seems to me that you're hitting all three departments, right? You're doing mm-hmm. account work, you're doing the strategy work, you're doing the writing, you're copywriting. So, you know, yeah. do you ever, you ever feel that like you're, <laughs> you're just like the, the combination of all three of these departments sort of working at once? Definitely. Um, and not to, and not to slight any of my other amazing colleagues who like are strategically like on, you know, copywriting role. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that I've realized just in the industry as a whole is that there's not a lot of really strong writers who do PR. And you would think that, you know, to do PR and to be like in media that you would have to be a strong writer. 
But there are some people who just do not want to write an op-ed or do not want to worry about message development. So I found that because I like it, it's kind of like made me a, a bit of a stronger communicator and it's brought very interesting um, aspects to the work. Excuse me. Um, because I'm able to look at an assignment or like look at an account and see, okay, like these are the messages that you're working with. Like, how can we, how can we like upgrade those? Or, you know, like this is like just like your day-to-day -day account work. Like, how can we just kind of weave in all these pieces together? I think it's just about, I think it's a blessing for me because I do carry all of those different talents and those different minds. Um, but sometimes it can be a curse because like, you know, when, when you're in an agency, when you're good at your job, everyone wants you to do more work. It's like, I was like joking with some friends a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, I was just so tired of like my hard work being rewarded with more hard work. It's like, you do one great thing and then it's like, okay, like do it again and do it 10 times better. Um, but it's good because it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you, um, I don't know, it just makes you a strong communicator. You have to be a strong, in my opinion, writing is one of the essential things that you have to do and that doesn't mean that you have to enjoy writing op-eds like i do you don't have to enjoy doing narrative but you have to be able to persuade someone through some words like half of the job you know when you're in an agency it's like pitching all the time you know even like even if it's not pitching new biz you're pitching an idea to a client you're pitching to media, you're pitching you know, with your teams internally. So you have to just kind of know how to persuade people and you have to know how to adapt um, your mind to different industries and different ideas. And I really learned that skill through my job before I joined an agency. Um, I was working at the Department of Economic Development. And when I tell you, I would have some projects that like one week was like FinComs and the next week was agriculture and the next week was just like um, real estate and I would just like have to figure out how to build strategies with all these different industries so it was a really interesting exercise in mm -hmm. <laughs> shifting my writing styles which is not easy it's really not easy so you know I don't I don't have any great advice for how to do it because there are some times that I still struggle but one thing I do a lot is reading and I think that helps the more that I read I feel the more confident that I am in my writing. Who are your favorite authors? Oh, this is, okay, so this is a tough question because I love fiction. So, dang, okay, so I guess my overall favorite writer would be James Baldwin because- <gasps> Me too, me too. I just, I'm about to reread Notes of a Native Son. I think mm -hmm. it's gonna be like my little Thanksgiving um, <laughs> holiday read. So James Baldwin for sure. If I'm thinking like, I'm really into like sci-fi and like fantasy books. So I've been really enjoying Tomi Adeyemi. She wrote Children of Blood and Bone and it's really one of the best young adult like novels. It's really action packed. So she's one of my favorites. She's a young like Nigerian American author, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, right now I'm reading Lovecraft Country. And I watch the show, and I'm usually not the type of person who, um, who watches something before they read the book, but I didn't know that it was based on a book until like the first episode, and I was like hooked after that. So I'm reading the book, and it's actually really good. I wouldn't say like Matt Ruff is one of my favorite authors, but he, this book is really well done. Um, I mean, I could go on for days about my favorite authors. I'm trying to think of one more, maybe a guy who I like. 
no one's coming to mind. No, no male authors are coming to mind right now, but um, subscribe to the Nook because I share my weekly um, reads every Sunday. So shameless yeah. plug. Oh, I was definitely gonna plug it later because I actually <laughs> subscribed today. Um, Yay. So the reason I asked that was because I was gonna ask, you know, you, you mentioned um, having to learn basically uh, how to adapt your, your writing style. And so I was going to ask, you know, based off of your favorite authors, um, have you taken certain things from any of them that you've brought into your own writing? Mm -hmm. So from James Baldwin specifically, I actually take a lot of, I, I shouldn't say stylistic things because his style is very impossible to um, imitate, but he's very unapologetic in what he's saying and what he's writing. Like even, um, when I think about some of his fiction works, like Giovanni's Room, mm -hmm. um, it's just so unapologetic and bold. And that's the kind of writing that I like to do for my clients. Um, but the, the thing there is that some clients aren't ready to take it there. Some clients aren't ready to be bold. And now that we're in this new, I don't want to say this new age, but I think businesses are in this new frame of mind where they're like, okay, we have to take a stand. We have to like, you know, like be bold but they're still not ready for that. So when, when I think about James Baldwin, I just think about how like unapologetic he is. And I try to take that lens when I'm writing. I recently wrote an op-ed for a client that is on Blavity. I'll share the link with you. Yeah, um, me too. But it was one of the first exercises for me that actually got published. That was like me just, I mean, I don't, I mean, going like ball to the wall. I don't know if I can say that on your podcast. <laughs> But it, was like, it was like me just like putting it out there and I was like the system is rigged <laughs> I was just kind of like going in and it felt really good so that was like one uh I guess it's one person who informs how I write um Toni Morrison oh Toni Morrison obviously mm -hmm. one of my favorite authors she's so poetic and I don't really consider myself a poetic writer like I love reading poetry but I don't write poetry um, but there's just something about the way that she weaves words together that is like so gentle and so soft. So in that same way that I like to be unapologetic and bold when I'm writing for clients, I also do want to have that like touch of like tenderness and softness. And that goes for like my personal writing too. Like, you know, every week when I write the nook, I try to base it off of like, you know, whatever I'm feeling or whatever I've like dealt with that week so sometimes it's like light and funny and sometimes it's sad but the through line for all of that is just like it's unapologetic with however I feel and I also want to convey like tenderness like you know like we're all in this together um the world sucks all the time not just right now it sucks all the time but um there is like a tenderness and a gentleness to it that I do that I do enjoy and that's why I do like writing because you can kind of convey all of those different things with just like a word choice. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I I am so glad you mentioned James Baldwin because <laughs> I, I think I was first introduced to him. That would have been sophomore year undergrad. I took a creative writing class and we had to read Notes of a Native Son, and I was so moved by it that for my like final project, I wrote a collection of writings some of them were pseudo poems because i am not a poet but uh it was called notes of a non-native son and i really wrote it about my dad um and ever since i've been just hooked on all of his stuff and you mentioned giovanni's room i actually read that for the first time like two months ago how'd you like it 
loved it. I, oh, I felt so like <laughs> I felt like I was in Paris on these side streets with him, like in the car. Like I yeah. felt like I was in that room. It, it's it's he has such a way with words, and I think that something else that is I think unique to his work that I haven't really seen in a lot of other authors is that it gets so religious. Like just the way he writes, it's he's giving a sermon. Like, and I think that goes into your your point about how matter of fact it is. Like, I think he's literally giving us a sermon through those words. Yeah, I I went to Paris last year with my best friend, and I felt that same way. Like just walking down the streets of Paris, like just feeling like I was like so close to James Baldwin. I actually had um we had breakfast at one of the we had breakfast at the restaurant that he wrote Giovanni's room at, oh, but I awesome. cannot for the life of me, I had to go through my Instagram to find the name of the restaurant, but it was so great. Um, I forgot where I was going with that because I get so passionate about, oh, so you're talking about James Baldwin, how it feels like a, a sermon. It really does. And it just, it just feels so raw. And there are so many times like in Giovanni's room specifically where I had to close the book. I was like, okay, like this is... <laughs> I was like, you know, like, let me shut the book and let me like step away for 10 minutes because it's so raw and it's so real. And like, if we're going to like loop it back to communications, I think that's like the best work that I want to do. I want the work to feel raw. I want it to feel real because like we are not always by choice connected to these brands. Like there are so many brands that, you know, just through life, you just use like Crest. I don't think I've ever <laughs> used a different toothpaste. I just, yeah. I grew up on it. I like it. I keep using it. So there are so many ways that we're all connected to these brands. And I think the call for brands now and that what consumers are expecting is more. They want raw. They want real. Like there was that Etsy commercial that I just saw on YouTube. And it was so beautiful that it like moved me to tears because it was um, a black family and um, the son had brought his boyfriend over for Christmas for the first time. And you could see like the nervousness and like, he, you know, he's like, what do I do? Like when you go to a significant other's house for the first time, you just kind of feel lost. Um, but at the end of the commercial, the, I, I guess like the boyfriend's dad brought him like a little gift. And it was just so sweet because when you think about the relationship of the black family, um, or, or, you know, Black people and the gay community in general, there's a lot of tension. Um, so it was a beautiful commercial. And I feel like that's type of the work that I want to do. Like, let's get real. Like, if we're going to talk about these issues, let's not tiptoe around it. Like, let's bring the right people in the room. Let's bring diversity, like, and not just diversity of thought. I kind of hate that phrase, diversity mm. of thought. I'm like, yes, that's important, but we also need diversity of, like, people. <laughs> Um, people from all walks of life. So that's like the kind of work, like that's the best work to me when I see things like that. And when it centers black stories, that's what it's about. Like, I think that if you fail to center black people in any kind of communications, then you failed. No matter what audience you're trying to reach, if you haven't centered black people at all, then you failed. Mm. That, uh, that's it. I am so I made graphics for every episode. Um, and I think that's going to be my, uh, my think on this graphic <laughs> for sure. Um, so I will follow your lead and come back to talking about communications. <laughs> so, uh, no, you're good. I'm just, I'm just kidding. So, um, 
one thing I kind of wanted to get your 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 sense your take on is, um, and this kind of goes back to um, being typecast in corporate environments. I'm going to try to make a link. We'll see if that happens. But you know, there there's been this huge push for hiring DNI consultants, chief diversity officers, um, you know, that kind of thing in the C-suite. But mm -hmm. what's been your your sense of you know how that has translated down to folks who might be mid-level, might be entry-level? Just because, and, and for context, I say this as someone who's seen, you know, focus really on that sort of chief diversity officer level and uh, diversity in hiring. But mm -hmm. it seems like, at least from my vantage point, I haven't seen a lot of connection for those people who are in the middle. Um, what, you know, as someone who works, you know, in multicultural communications, what's your sort of take on um, the right focus for companies to have when it comes to um, not only diversity, but, you know, uh, tenure and, and keeping people and making them feel uh, welcome and empowered in their workplace? Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, so many people, so many organizations have started to hire chief diversity officers because they're the most visible. But the problem is not always in the seat. Well, the problem is a lot of times in the C-suite. Yeah, the problem is sometimes the all-white board, the all-white C-suite. So just hiring one chief diversity officer is not going to solve that, especially if you're not going to set up that person for success. Um, I think a lot of times people, or I keep saying people, but brands and organizations will hire a CDO and expect that in six months, every person of color um, at their organization is gonna be happier. And it's like, no, like, have you addressed pay parity? Have you addressed the microaggressions that your junior staff might be feeling from that mid-level staff? And I've also seen the issue where there's, like you said, far few, far little diversity in the C, on the C-level. And then there's a lot of diversity in the junior staff level and the internships. But it's like, you know, junior staff and interns aren't making big decisions. They're a lot of times doing, I don't like saying the grunt work, but they're building the media list. They're heads down doing all of like the dirty work of communications, which is like the most important work, honestly. So it's like, you have one chief diversity officer and you have like a hundred, you know, black interns and like Asian interns and like diversity at that level. But that in between is what's really missing. And that's what really makes or break people's experience. You know, if I, I have an amazing manager, like I don't know where I would be <laughs> without my manager, um, but I'm very lucky in that manner because I've seen so many people struggle with manager relationships in general. It's like, if I'm if I'm a black woman and my manager is a white man and I don't like him and he makes my life hard, I'm gonna quit. And that's how turnover happens, especially in the agency world. So I do find that in order to really address, you know, the lack of diversity is that you have to address it across the board and you have to make sure that your chief diversity officer, if that's the way that you want to go about it that they're equipped with the tools and the budget to get this work done, that they have support from the C-suite. Like the, the CEO and the CDO, in my opinion, should be in lockstep. Because if the CEO isn't aligned with any kind of like DNI vision, then it's gonna fail. I think that a lot of times, a lot of organizations keep diversity in the HR function 
And there are that, you know, that's important. There are several important aspects of having diversity in HR because we talk about hiring and recruitment and retention, but it needs to start at the top. And I think that the CEO and the CDO needs to be in lockstep at all times. So it's hard when, you know, for years and years and years, these companies have kind of gotten away with the bare minimum. They've gotten away with the one black man, the one black woman, and now they're being held at a higher standard. And it's going to take some time, you know, like, this awakening for a lot of brands just happened in June and it's only November. So we're not going to see a lot of progress, especially now. I mean, everyone's like off work for Thanksgiving. So we're not going to see a lot of like new hires. We're not going to see a lot of progress around this time, but it's about that long game and the long term. So what does your, what were your DNI numbers like in June, 2020? And what are they like in June, 2021? Have you had progress? Are you benchmarking against something? Those are the kind of things that I want to see. And also, are you getting rid of the toxic people at your job in your environment? <laughs> because there are a lot of toxic people who hold powerful positions. And if they're still in that role, then I mean, those same issues are going to be perpetuated for a long time, as long as they're there. For sure. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about, kind of on the other hand, but kind of not, is about multicultural agencies. Um, so there's a lot out there, uh, at age, I know has, uh, the multicultural agency of the year award. Um, have you had experience working with, uh, multicultural shops? Um, you know, have you, have you seen, or have your clients sort of worked with them and you've been brought in on a process or something like that in the past? I have, well, actually I have, um, so with one client, they have, um, different, you know, several larger brands have like different agencies of record. So they'll have like, one agency does this, one agency does, does that. So I've worked with a multicultural agency and it's been a great experience. It's a very small shop, um, but they do really big work. So that would be the only example that I have. But what I do admire about multicultural agencies is that they can be so scrappy. I think, you know, what happens a lot in big agencies is we get bogged down in the process. Um, and I think that kind of like hinders creativity sometimes because if I have a really cool creative idea for a tweet that it has to hit, you know, today or the trend is going to die and it's going to be lame if we do it tomorrow, but I have to take it up to um, my account lead and then the client and then legal and then finance. And then it's like, it's been three days and the tweet, it don't even matter no more. <laughs> and I have dealt with that so many times. I'll be like, oh my gosh, this this is a great idea. We have to hop on this. And then by the time it gets approved, it's like, it's the moment has passed. So I do admire that they are able to be so nimble and so scrappy. And then that their finger is just so on the pulse. And I think it just kind of happens organically. Like from what I imagine is like, you know, a room full of like diverse people who are like, you know, tracking trends and they see something cool and they can just make it pop. And that's what, like, that's what media has to be today. Yeah. It has to be nimble. It has to be like scrappy because you'll miss a moment. And then, you know, everyone wants to have, I call it their Wendy's moment. Everyone wants to have their Wendy's moment on social media. Cause you know, Wendy's be going viral every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like Wendy's, <laughs> their social media team is highly trusted because the things that they say the reason it pops is because they don't have to probably take it up the ladder a hundred times. Like 
you're never going to have your, your Wendy's moment if you are so scared to be bold and if you're so scared to just like tell a joke. Um, so I think about that a lot because like I, I haven't had my Wendy's moment as a counselor. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. But you know, like I haven't, I also haven't had the opportunity because I work with a lot of large corporate brands and with large corporate brands comes large corporate processes and the legal teams are scary. And if legal says no, guess what? Like it's not happening. It's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not happening. Yeah. So, um, you know, you mentioned uh, being nimble, scrappy, bold. Uh, do you think that um, given today's climate, given where we're hopefully headed, which is a more diverse, a more equitable future mm-hmm. uh, for both people, agencies, clients, whatever the case is, um, do you think that the way in which uh, maybe more traditional agencies and multicultural agencies work together is going to change? Do you think that there may be like a change of dynamic between clients and agencies and multicultural? Like, it, you know, does does the future of how the agency system works, does it change, um, you know, sort of shifting this power dynamic more to multicultural agencies in the future? Do you think that's something that can or will happen? I, I don't know if I can really answer that. I'm hopeful that that would happen, but I don't really see too much fault in the agency structure. You know, when we do agency, we are providing a service to these big clients who are paying us millions of dollars. So at its core, um, I don't see that aspect changing. But what I hope is that all communicators, you know, we are the individuals who hold the power. We are the ones who are giving the ideas and we have to ingrain multicultural from the start. It needs to be, you know, when you're doing your initial audience research, when you're building your plan, do not just look at your typical white American family and base it off of that. I think that's where it has to start. It needs to start in that strategy phase. So, you know, every communicator I hope has, you know, no matter what color of skin you are, I hope that you have learned something through this um, time because I think, you know, I've learned a lot and we are all accountable. But, you know, I think what happens a lot of times in when we think about multicultural and the traditional agency, you know, relationship is that communicators will reach out to the multicultural or DNI team only during Black History Month or only at a time where we see another George Floyd incident. And that's not how it's done. The best brands who do multicultural the right way are doing it every single day. So it has to, I think the communicators need to shift their mind from multicultural as a second thought when it really needs to be from the beginning, because that's what the world is, you know, like we have to ingrain these things from the beginning if we want it to change. Um, so that's my take on it. I, I actually, I don't know if the onus is on the structure. I would put it on the communicators, especially I have so much hope for, you know, college grads who are wanting to do this kind of work because they are truly um, witnessing something like, I think it's unparalleled in communications and they have, is it Gen Z who's after us? Yeah, yeah. They are some of the Z than Alpha or whatever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Gen Z and Alpha. I have so much hope for them because just from the things that I, they're so creative, they're so funny and raw, and they have such like high expectations for brands. Like 
you know, if it's not on TikTok right now, then like, it's not going to pop. You know what I'm saying? Like there's just certain things that I, I see in Gen Z that I look forward to this next class of communicators, because I think that they're going to change the game. I think they're the ones who are going to really like ensure that, you know, there's representation, there's, you know, trans representation, there's all kinds of just like beauty. They, they see the real beauty in the world, but they've grown up so privileged to see these mm-hmm. amazing things like through their phones. And I think yeah. that they're really going to change the game. Yeah, I, I think that they have a very unique um, sort of confluence of creativity, yeah. access to technology, um, you know, just the unwillingness to take any bullshit. Honestly, they like, That's they'll it. call you out on it. And- they will call you out and they will not care. Yeah. And I, I really respect that because I feel like I've now gotten to that point. But when I was 21, I was, I was not going to be calling nobody out. I was like, I'm trying to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> like, and a lot of them have become like famous or, you know, like our social media famous off of just being like opinionated and raw. And I also, I love that they don't play by the rules. I think that's what communicators in general have to stop worrying about. It's just playing by the rules or doing things as they've been done. I think that Gen Z specifically, I'm a millennial and I sometimes feel like millennials still play by the rules, but I think Gen Z is like, fuck the rules. Like, (laughs) this is how I'm doing it. This is what needs to be done. And I think they're going to make a really major impact on the communications field specifically because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So last, uh, last question before we talk a little bit more about you. Um, and yeah. this was something that came up earlier and it's more about like company problems. Um, so you mentioned, you know, uh, the increase of, you know, awareness of problems around black history month or specifically these tragic, tragic events. And so I wanted to sort of ask just generally, you know, when it comes to, you know, navigating problems, leading your clients, advising them on things, what are some of the most common problems that uh you know companies come to you with um hmm. it depends on the day honestly i think (laughs) now now after this summer a lot of the problems have been multicultural and dni facing sometimes they're genuine crisis problems like I don't know, like, this is a a really bad example, but like, you know, like our factory burned down and like, we're in a crisis or, you know, whatever, like there's just general crisis problems, but they do come with a lot of multicultural questions. And the thing that um, I have to remind clients is that if you are specifically speaking to a black audience, don't be afraid to say that. If you're specifically speaking to the Latino audience, don't be afraid to say that. I think what a lot of brands and clients sometimes struggle with is, you know, thinking that if we support, if we openly support the Black community, does that mean the Asian community feels unwelcomed? And that's not the case, you know, like, we have to not be afraid to um, specifically talk to the audience that we want to talk to. And I think when you start speaking to people how they want to be spoken to, it does create a welcome environment. You know, I've never felt during Hispanic Heritage Month, if a, if a brand that I like is celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month, I've never felt slighted as a Black woman. I'm like, great. Thank you for honoring them. Thank you for honoring this group of people. And I think a lot of time what happens is that clients can be like, oh, but we just don't want anyone to feel left out. And it's, And I don't ever believe that people will feel left out. It's like, 
to me, it's like, okay, if they're acknowledging this group of people, that means they have plans for my group of people as well. And that's how it should feel. So that's one of the most common problems. It's kind of like talking them through um, these bold ideas. And I put bold in quotes because I don't think multicultural communications is revolutionary. I don't think, you know, including black and brown people and Asian people and trans people, I don't think it, I don't think that's like, such a far-fetched idea it just needs to be done like let's just do it we've seen such great examples of people doing it and doing it well so like there's nothing to be afraid of you just gotta like take that first step so um that's one of the most common problems i feel like i've dealt with and overall just in general client day-to-day sometimes they're just like oh well we have this board meeting can you do a deck or we have um you know you know they're crazy ideas that come out of clients sometimes and we just kind of have to do them (laughs) yeah no, I, yeah, have definitely had similar experiences when it comes yeah, to like, that. I call it fire drill energy. I'm like, oh my gosh, fire drill energy for no reason, girl. Relax, we're gonna do this deck for you. Like, it'll be fine. <laughs> like, just chill out. Yeah, we got you. <laughs> we got you. <laughs> okay, cool. So I want to uh, talk a little bit more about you specifically, your career path. Um, yeah. So I want to flash back to when you were in school. So I know you went to Valdosta State, yeah. uh, which I'm pretty sure my stepsister either goes there now or just graduated from um (laughs) you you also went to george washington university for grad school so um walk me through what life was like you just graduated undergrad um you just done you just finished graduation ceremony what happens between there and uh deciding to go to grad school um well actually you you'll be surprised to know that i decided to go to grad school on my very first day of undergrad Mm. i don't think i've ever really said that out loud but my i remember my very first day of undergrad so clearly because my sister had just went into labor and she like my nephew was born on my very first day of college so i can never forget that day but i remember like finishing up my classes and feeling really inspired and excited that I was like, I want to go to grad school. And I didn't really know what for at the time, but I just knew that I wanted to go. So um, I was really fortunate after college. And I don't take that for granted because I graduated with an internship that led to a job. Um, at the time, I was interning with former governor, former Georgia governor, Nathan Deal, who, uh, what a great governor. Uh, he's a great man. Um, so I was a press press fellow, press intern, whatever. And I was like, that's, that's some dirty work, man. It's just like news clips all day. You got reporters calling and yelling at you, you know, like (laughs) the governor signs a piece of of legislation and then like people are pissed off and like, you're just kind of fielding a lot of calls and, you know, running up press briefings to the governor's office, doing press conference. It was a very intense, you know, internship, but through that work, um, it was about three months in and I was promoted to a full-time role in the press office. And that's when I really got um, a good feel of like, you know, what media relations was, but I knew that it wasn't a holistic experience because when you work for a governor, when you work for any politician, the news comes to you. Like you don't have to worry about pitching. You don't have to worry about doing anything because like people always want to know what the governor is doing. So I knew that I needed to get more holistic experience as a communicator. And then um, I worked for the governor for maybe like a year, almost two years, like a a year and some change. Um, And then I moved to the Georgia Department of Economic Development, 
where I was a global commerce communication specialist. And um, that is a mouthful. But basically what <laughs> I did was um, when companies would locate in Georgia and they would create jobs and make a big yeah. investment in the community, I would build strategies around how to announce that. So it was very <laughs> like plug and play kind of role. Like once I got the first few down, like it was a, it was a place where they didn't like too much change. So it's like kind of do the same thing over and over. So I, but through that role, I started learning how to build strategy and also how to pitch because there were times where I had to pitch media for different things. So it was a good experience for me, but it was also something that I was like, I cannot be here forever. I mean, I learned a lot about how to deal with people because I dealt with some really horrible people at that job. Like, so, and that's just something that you're always going to deal with at work. I'm glad I got that lesson really early because people can be really hard to work with. Mm. And I would, there'll be some times where I would like call my mom and my dad and cry like at work. I was like, they're so mean to me. And I was like very young. I think I was 23, 24 in a, in a role of that size. It felt, I felt like very small. And I was like one of the few black women there. So I felt like a lot of microaggressions and I, it was a very interesting experience. I was so happy when I left. So, um, but through that, I decided that I needed agency experience. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got to Edelman, which is where I'm currently at now. And um, I ended up moving to DC to take on this role. But I did forget to mention that I was in grad school. I was doing grad school during um, my time at the governor's office and at the Georgia Department of Economic Development. Mm -hmm. I did my program online and I did take a few courses. I would go to DC and like, you know, do a few classes here and there in person. Um, so that was really hard. I don't know how I did it. I will never go to school again. <laughs> like just like the, the tax of like working full time and then going to school. Like there were some times where I would work until like five, get home at six, work until like do homework until like two in the morning, wake up at 6am and like do it all over again. So, um, but I took a year off. So after I graduated in 20. 15, I didn't start until like the fall of 2016, my grad program. I took a year off, which I really appreciate it. But now I will never go to school again. Never. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then that's how I got to Edelman. And Edelman is how I've had all those really great experiences, like with agency. I've worked with really awesome consumer brands who I don't want to mention, but, you know, really cool work that I've done. Um, super exciting to be able to be the voice behind a lot of these brands that you guys Y'all probably use them every day. Y'all probably drink the drinks every day or you you take a bath and you do the, you use this every day. So it's really fun. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So uh, I'm with you on never going back to school. I <laughs> did not work full time when I went to grad school. Um, I worked at the university, but it wasn't like I went to work and then went yeah. to school or anything like that. And I feel that way. So I can only imagine what it was like to have the responsibility of a full-time job and all this extra stuff on top of that. So kudos to you because. <laughs> yeah, I, I was too ambitious and I, I, I don't say that in a bad way, but I do. Um, one thing that I will say is that my early twenties, I sacrificed a lot of fun time. Like I had fun, but I was truly always that girl who was like, 
oh guys, like I'll come after I finish my homework or I'll, you know, I was always that person. So, you know, I've, I've had a really great career, but I did sacrifice a lot of like, just fun, I think. But now, you know, like whatever, I'm having a lot of fun. Well, it's COVID, so I'm not having too much fun. <laughs> but, you know, like now I'm able to like enjoy the fruits of my labor, but none of that has come without like a lot of sacrifice in the beginning. Yeah, well, I, I will say that I think with, with high achieving people, there is always sort of a, a certain level of delayed gratification. Yeah. And um, yeah, 100% agree with you there. It does suck, but you're always telling yourself it's worth it because you're working to this higher sort of um, or yeah. more lofty aspiration or something like that. Definitely. And it has, it has been worth it, um, especially as my career continues to evolve. Like, I feel like I've had a lot of dreams and I've been able to realize a lot of my dreams. Like I've actually worked both of my dream jobs. I really, when I graduated from college, I really wanted to work in politics. I was super inspired by the Obama administration. Um, so it really kind of like made me want to work in politics. And I specifically wanted to do press because I just knew how important it was. So working for um, a former governor was a bit of a dream job for me. And Edelman was another dream agency. And, and I wanted to live in DC and that was like my dream city. So I, like, I achieved these dreams <laughs> yeah. and I'm so happy, but like, I'm the type of person who like, you know, they say like life is a series of dreams realized. And I like, I realized a dream and I have another one and I have another one. So I have a few more ambitious dreams <laughs> that I'm excited that I hope I'm like crossing my fingers that I can achieve them. Um, but I think that's like the fun part about communications too, is that like, it's always changing. Like who knows what the next Twitter is going to be in 10 years. And like, it, it's a, it's a industry that keeps you on your toes. Um, things are always evolving. How we communicate is always evolving. And I mean, who knows how we're going to be communicating 10 years from now. And I'll only be 37, 10 years from now. So I'll still be early in the game. Who <laughs> yep. knows what I'll be doing in 10 years. <laughs> so at the top of the show, and I'm going to, I'm going to keep using your, your dreams uh, phrase. Yeah. So at the top of the show, you mentioned you had this dream of being a powerful businesswoman. Uh, I want to be a boss. I want to hear my heels clicking down the, down the hallway, right? So yes. <laughs> between that sort of initial, um, you know, aspiration and being inspired by the Obama campaign and presidency and wanting to do press and politics to getting that first internship, was there a point where you sort of narrowed down that 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 focus on wanting to be a powerful businesswoman into wanting to do specifically like communications work. Was there a was there a moment where you decided, okay, no, I want to do PR, I want to do communications, and that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think once I got into um, like the working world, I realized I was a businesswoman anyway. So I was like, you know, I don't own a business, but I am handling business mm -hmm. and you know, I'm in these great rooms, like with the governor, and I felt so powerful. And even though I had a very small role, I never really played small. Like I was an intern, but I would walk up to the governor and be like, hey, like, here's your press briefing, you know, like, here's what we're doing today. Here's the schedule. And I never, I never played small, like no matter what I've done. So I think I've always been able to hold up that air about myself. Like, yeah, I'm that bitch. Like I'm powerful. <laughs> I'm doing it anyway. Um, and then I just realized like the, the power of words that has been a very common theme throughout my life. 
my mom can probably tell you a hundred stories about how I wrote letters to people and I got my way. And when I wanted something for my mom and dad, I would like do a presentation. Like when I wanted a cell phone when I was 13, which is like so old for cell phones now. But you know, when I was younger, we couldn't get cell phones until we were teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> so when I wanted a cell phone, I like did this whole presentation for my mom and dad to like tell them why I needed one. So um, yeah, I guess to answer your question, like, I, I just realized that like my dream of like having my heels clicked down the hallway could live no matter what I did, but I knew that I was a strong writer. I knew that I was persuasive and that I could like influence people. So I was like, why not? This is, this is a great career for me. It works for me. And um, it's, it's, I've really enjoyed it so far, even yeah. through the trials and tribulations of this year, I have enjoyed <laughs> my career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, you, you've already answered one of my questions, which was sort of, you know, what's something that you've sort of picked up in each phase of your career? And you're, you already told me, you know, when you were at the press office, that was all about media relations. And then at the next role um, at the Department of Economic Development, it was, you know, you learned how to build strategies, how to pitch, dealing with hard to work with people. Um, and so, uh, you know, I guess the, the next question is like, have you, I know you talked about some of the, the next dreams that you want to fulfill. Um, have you worked out sort of what, what comes next? I think I have. Um, Career-wise, you know, I, I want to continue to focus on Black people specifically, um, because nothing moves without Black culture. Black culture is such a powerful tool that I feel like it would be a shame with my career and with what I believe in if I didn't focus on Black people. So, that I think is just kind of like an overarching of my what I want in my next phase. And then with the Nook, which is like my little side, I, I shouldn't say little, it's my side project that developed over quarantine because I was feeling creative and um, I started sharing these articles every day. I figured, you know, why not like make a newsletter? So I would love to just continue to grow the Nook. One thing I've loved about it is that it just, people when they write back to me, they share how it helps them stay informed. It's fun. It's like easy to read. And it's just something that feels good. So I want to continue growing the nook. I don't really know um, my specific next steps for that. But as of right now, it's growing so much faster than I thought it would. So it's, it's a blessing. And I'm planning to um, take some time over the holidays to really sit down and figure out like the strategy for that. But, you know, I think my calling is really black people and my calling is just like, you know, like black folks in conversation, you know, what are we talking about? The conversations that we have on Twitter truly inform the work that I do behind the scenes. Like every word that black people say, every dance that we do is like the next cool thing. So it's like, I, like, I wanna continue to hone in on that in a powerful way that also ensures that black folks are getting paid for this. You know what I'm saying? Like you're not, you're, we're not just stealing your content or that people mm -hmm. aren't just stealing our content that we're actually getting the, the recognition we deserve. You know, like if I see another TikTok of some white girl <laughs> imitating a black woman, I'm gonna be pissed. Cause I'm just like mm -hmm. black culture truly moves everything. So if I can just focus my career on how to elevate the black voice and center the black voice, then I'll be satisfied. 
Yeah. What have you learned about yourself through launching the Nook? Oh, <laughs> what have I learned about myself? Um, I would say that I've learned how to persevere a lot more through the Nook. I never, 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 never wanted to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> I never wanted to be one of those people who was like, I got my own business. That seemed like too much for me. Um, even like passion projects, I had never really dived into it because I was like so focused on my like corporate career that I just didn't have time for it. So um, when I had all that downtime, you know, in the beginning, in the beginning of quarantine, I really kind of figured out like my voice and how how hard it is to do a weekly newsletter like that takes consistency and i've always been very disciplined and i've always been um very consistent in what i do but doing the nook has taken it to a whole different level of just like consistency every day um last sunday was actually the first sunday that i've ever skipped and it's been like 22 editions of the nook so that it, it was a really big deal that i skipped it but i like i needed a mental break but just the perseverance, like, you know, no matter how hard of a work week that I had, I was able to sit down on Saturday night and write the nook. And no matter how emotional the news made me or how pissed off I was at work, I was able to sit down and write the nook. So it's really taught me how to persevere um, through whatever emotions that I've had. And it's also tested my writing skills because you know, writing for others can easily be done for me. I don't really care to have my voice at the forefront of a lot of things. Like a lot of things that people have probably seen and read has been written by me, but it's like, I don't need that kind of exposure. Mm -hmm. um, but writing for myself has been challenging because I'm like, wow, like this is, I'm, this is me and people are reading like how I feel and this is like making me nervous and like do they like it is there a typo yes more than likely it's a typo <laughs> um so it's just been like a another test in trusting myself um I'm I'm the curator the editor I do the sending so it's like there's really no other oversight but me and I just have to trust myself so I think in any um personal project there's a level of perseverance that you have to push through and then a level of trust that you have to have in yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would 100% echo that. I feel pretty much the same way about, you know, just even doing this podcast. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, I did subscribe today, so I am super hyped to uh, join you on your journey. And um, I can't wait to feature this podcast in the book because <laughs> it's going to be so great. Every week I do like a, I do like five morning coffee reads to like, just like news stories. And then I review a book, a book that I've read, like a longer review, and then I share a podcast. So Pay It Forward will be in the next edition of The Nook, and I'm super excited to share it. Yeah, I am super excited to read. That sounds awesome. That sounds right up my alley. I have like a whole Gmail uh, filter, like label, whatever it's called, um, for my daily reads. So super, super oh, ready for that. Um, cool. So before every episode uh, Pay It Forward, I ask, you know, guess like what's something they're reading, a challenge they're facing, something they're proud of, um, and a piece of advice for people who listen. So we just yeah. talked about the neck. Um, I was gonna say again that I subscribe, but I think I've said that like five <laughs> times. So let them um, know. <laughs> let them know. So what uh what are you reading right now? And um what has it inspired in you? So I am reading a couple of books. I'm reading three books right now. I'm reading 
Killing the Black Body Gap by Dorothy Roberts. It's about reproductive justice. Um, I've been really intrigued by the different ways in which we can achieve like equality. And as a Black woman who hopefully will be fortunate enough to have children one day, um, I, I'm really focused on reproductive justice, not even just when it comes to abortion, but just like how um, we can create systems to make sure that after women choose to have or to not have a child that they're supported either way. So I'm reading that. I'm reading Lovecraft Country because mm -hmm. I need to read it. The show is so good and the book is actually really good. And I just, I'm like 10 pages into um, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, um, which is about two twin sisters. And that's about all I have, but it's like super, I love Britt Bennett and I'm excited to dig into that. So those are the three books that I'm reading. <laughs> Gotcha. Um, what is something that's been a challenge for you lately? Oh, this is, this could be a whole different podcast if I say this. Um, so something that has been a challenge work-wise that I've been facing is pay parity. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been just fighting to get um, the pay that I deserve. So that's a challenge, but it's been a really good exercise in knowing my worth and standing up for myself and advocating for myself. Um, so yeah, that's one challenge, but I'm overcoming it. I'm actually at some really good progress was made yesterday. So, um, you know, that's a challenge, but I'm overcoming it. And I think as black women, it's something money is important. I'm never going to downplay that money. I'm never going to say money is not important. Okay. I need to keep a roof over my head. I got to keep myself fed. So making sure that I'm paid for all the amazing work that I do is super important. Yeah, for sure. Um, there is a strategist on Twitter. I haven't actually met her in person, but we've like talked. Uh, her name is Mary Ergel. And uh, she had a series of tweets back in the day that was all about why, you know, just calling out why talking about how much people make it so stigmatized um, and secretive when if we were just open and honest about it, we would probably be further along the way to achieving pay parity than we are. Um, Agreed. <laughs> yeah. So um, what's something that you've been, you know, really proud of? Um, whew, something I've been really proud of. I've been really proud of the Nook, um, but I've also just really been proud of myself, um, just with how I've <laughs> adjusted to the pandemic, I really struggled. The people around me have lost loved ones and it's just been a really hard year um, personally. And it's just been hard. So I'm really proud of myself because um, I found a way to show up for myself and for others, even when there are days that I can barely get out of bed when there are days that I'm crying in between meetings because like the world is collapsing, I'm really proud of myself. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that because, you know, things could be, I don't like saying that things could be a lot worse, but my reaction to them could be a lot worse, but I tend to just like find a way out of, you know, situations and make lemonade out of lemons. So <laughs> super proud of myself. <laughs> Yeah, as you should be. I think that, uh, you know, working from home and, and being so isolated, 
it has been like really a reckoning for so many people because it's like wow. you just you just have to sit with your thoughts and, and how do you you know make yourself okay with everything that's going on like yeah. i know for me i've been uh reading a lot more but like reading a lot of like just eastern philosophy stuff Ooh. uh and oh, you got the quote from today yeah yeah, yeah. like <laughs> For sure. Like I was reading uh, earlier, it's called Tao Te Ching, and it's like one of the foundational texts for Taoism, but it's yeah. not like a Bible. It's Ooh. just a series of poems, kind of. Not, I don't know if they're poems or not. It, it's just like, yeah. um, and they all have different themes to them. And it, you know, I, just, I try to read one and then just like sit there for like five minutes and be like, okay, what does this actually mean? Yeah. And try to translate it into like how I would explain it to someone who had never heard of it. Um, it's really yeah. interesting that you mentioned the isolation thing because I actually love being alone. I love doing things alone. Like, you know, before the pandemic, I was I would always take myself out to eat, go to the movies. Just like I would, I'm a solo kind of girl. Mm -hmm. um, but the isolation has been tricky because I feel like I've had no choice <laughs> but to be like I'm with my parents now. That's different. Um, but it's just like, you know, I do miss the camaraderie of like being with my colleagues and like just, you know, being able to like struggle through something in person with someone. Um, so yeah, the isolation has been tricky, but I ha I did read this book by, I cannot pronounce his name, so I don't want to mess it up, but it's called Silence. And it was such a beautiful, like meditative book. And it was just about how to cultivate silence wherever you are. Um, Silence by Tick, not Han, and I feel like Tick, T I C H T. Um, that's how you spell it. So anyway, it's it's a really good book about cultivating silence wherever you are, and it really had helped me when I was suffering from like crazy Zoom fatigue because I was so mm -hmm. sick of hearing people talk that I had to like find way because I have to go to these meetings. I can't just not go, so I had to like find a way to like really get more meditative and like. Um, just more zen it was helpful <laughs> i have this youtube video uh it's uh a monk and i don't know if the guy who's like there's another guy i don't know if he's a monk or if he's just recording the video um but essentially it's like a 10 maybe 15 minute guided meditation Ooh, um i will send it to you it is <laughs> phenomenal um and I mean, I can't tell you how good this video is. I, I do it before, like, if I have calls that I'm getting anxious for, I'll just do it. And wow. then I'll roll into the call. And I'm just like, I'm hey, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I am unfazed. I am you can't calm. bother me. Yeah, yeah. I need that. <laughs> I will send that to you. Um, and then last question here is, what is a piece of advice you would give to, you know, either Black students or Black professionals who listen to your episode? Um, the piece of advice that I would give would be to pursue your dreams with reckless abandon. Like, you know, I know that sometimes attaining what you want is hard and there will be doors that are shut right in your face, but if you want it, keep pursuing it, you know, keep focused on it. I really wanted to move to DC and I was willing to do whatever it took. Um, and I, and I made that happen. So whatever your dream is, just pursue it with reckless abandon. Don't worry about the location. 
don't worry about what your mom or your dad or your sister says. Just do it because you are the only person who's going to live your life and you have to live with your decisions and you don't want to live with regret. So pursue your dreams. Don't let anyone stop you or tell you no. And, and if your dreams change, that's okay. Pursue it. If it changes, you know, just keep going. Where can people find you online and where can they find the Nook online? Okay. So you can find me on Instagram at Big D Energy. Don't laugh at my Instagram name. It's clever. <laughs> so that is Big D Energy, B-I-G-D-E Energy underscore. That's my Instagram name. My Twitter name is Big D Energy, no underscore. And you can find the Nook by going to my website, diasharandolph.com. And then there's a little tab that has the Nook and you can subscribe right there.